Do you think there are ever surprises in heaven? I, uh, there's certainly a lot of surprises here on earth um, in every different arena of your life. Probably daily you are surprised by something. But are there surprises in heaven? I, uh, I love this old poem that I was reminded of this week that says, I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door. Not by the beauty of it all, nor the lights or its decor, but it was the folks in heaven who made it, who made me sputter and gasp. The thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, and the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Herb, who I always thought was rotting away in hell, was sitting pretty on a cloud nine, looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus, what's the deal? I would love to hear your take. How'd all these sinners get up here? God must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet, so somber? Give me a clue. Child, he said, they're all in shock. They never thought they'd be seeing you. Um, so maybe there are surprises in heaven. Um, see, that's the kind of quality stuff you get with the text subscription, I guess. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, there are, there are, but are there, are there surprises in heaven? And um, I just want us to think today about the fact that there are not surprises in heaven. Um, as we look at the theme today, uh, the fun and exciting theme of election and predestination. What could go wrong with that? And so uh, we're going to talk about that today. And um, I've been banging my head on the wall with this theme. So you get to enjoy some of the fruits of that today. Um, but I, I want to read a couple of passages of scripture that introduce this theme and some of the words that go around with this, along with this, and, um, and go from there. I'm going to read, if you read your Core 52 material this week, you know that the uh, material was kind of based on Matthew 22 and a parable that Jesus told. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open there. Uh, these are not on the screen. The ones behind it will be. Um, but just listen to this parable again from Matthew 22, in which Jesus comes and presents a, a parable, and there are reasons for this parable that, that are, if you look at the history of Israel and how they were unwilling to follow the Lord in so many things, and yet um, those who were lesser than, the, the non-Israelite people, were oftentimes so willing to participate in what Jesus came to offer. And this parable reflects on that. It says this, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off. One went to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding feast, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all, all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, uh, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into outer darkness. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus closes this parable with this phrase that, that speaks to this theme of election, predestination, all this stuff. For many are called, but few are chosen. So as you look at that statement, um, who were the called uh, in that story? The called were all those who were invited previously and afterwards. That All those who were invited, many are called, but few are chosen. And that word chosen is the same word for elect or election that we see other places in the Bible. And so who are those chosen ones in that story? They are those who responded to that invitation and so that parable, uh, if you haven't read the chapter, I'd encourage you to go back and do it. It is a good job with that. Um, but that parable leads into other deeper, maybe more confusing passages that, that we might look at and realize that we're sweep, swimming in the deep end of the pool pretty quickly when you read verses like this from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and following. following. And we know uh, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So that word called, again, introduces that same theme again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Um. You look at those words and all of a sudden you're thinking, man, what in the world does all that mean? They're called. He foreknows them. They are predestined. Um, they're called, justified, glorified. Add to that as soon as you begin to t think about this subject, God's predestination, God's foreknowledge, his sovereignty, our free will, all those kind of things that gallons and gallons and gallons of ink have been put on books to try to explain and um, walk through all of these things. And so um, we have 30 minutes to uh, summarize something that has divided the church into dozens of camps and all kinds of drama over the years. And so um, I thought and thought all week long about how this is a topic that can make your head spin pretty quickly. And so my goal was not to rehash 500 years of church history. Um, my goal was to encourage people who walk in here today with some truth from God's word that will encourage you as you walk out of here. And in fact, when you read a passage like Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, when Paul wrote that, he was not trying to spark theological debates. He was not trying to divide the church into camps. He was trying to encourage Christians who were suffering in Rome to hold on. And so he uses these big, deep themes to say it's worth it if you'll hold on. And he tries to focus their attention on something bigger than the problems and the chaos and the struggles that they're in in that moment. And so he writes as a pastor, not as a theologian. And so I hope today to encourage you in a similar way. Um, because certainly the world in which you and I live in is full of a little bit of chaos and struggle and confusion. And we need something bigger. We need a bigger story. And I think these themes, although they be confusing and um, make our minds um, cramp sometimes because they're just deep and hard, I hope that we can be encouraged by them in some ways too. So I have always found it helpful whenever I come up against a theme or a topic that I think, man, this is confusing. I don't understand all of this stuff. I find it helpful for me, at least if I back up a little bit and say, okay, what do I know? What can I understand? What, what's clear and allow what's clear to maybe 
make sense a little bit of some of the stuff that's not clear. And so I've got four things, if time allows, we're going to share this morning. Um, that at least for me, as I approach this topic, I, I find that these four things at least begin me on the journey of thinking, okay, this is how this encourages me and helps me in my faith. And so the first one is simply this. I hope that you'll appreciate under this theme of, of calling and God foreknowing and his predestiny and all those big words, I hope that you first and foremost, foremost will appreciate how awesome God is. I hope that your first thought is to think, wow, God must be pretty big and pretty awesome to be on top of all this stuff, right? Because down here, we're looking at this from underneath, and this stuff just doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes. There's hard words, and it, and, but yet he's above it all, and it makes perfect sense to him. He's got it under control because of the awesomeness of God. Um, and there's lots of angles we could look at in God's awesomeness here, but I, I appreciate this one. I listened to a thing this week by, uh, by Mike Winger, who just did an a, a online lesson called, What Does God Know? And as I listened to it, it just um, made me appreciate the awesomeness of God as he walked through each of these things. It just is a biblical theme of all the things that, that the Bible says about, well, what does God know? We look at this topic of, of God foreknowing things and predestining things. And think, well, what does God know? That's a helpful question to help us begin this conversation with. And he had five things. I'll share them with you. Um, and uh, feel free to take pictures or jot these verses down. I don't have all the verses I'm going to read on the screen because there's a bunch of them. But uh, um, what does God know? Let's start with a basic one. Number one, God knows everything that happens in his universe. All right? God has made this universe. And the Bible teaches that God knows everything that goes on in his universe, which is an um, outrageously big claim, right? That God knows everything that's happening in his universe. Verses like this lead us to that thought. Job 28, 24, for God looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Job 31, 4, does not God see my ways and number all of my steps? Job 34, for his eyes are on the ways of a man and he sees all of his steps. There is no gloom or deep, deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. Proverbs 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord <clears throat> are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. And even Jesus would echo that from his own uh, teachings. Matthew 10, 29 through 30, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father for even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Again, you can add to this many, many things, but um, just gives you an idea that Old New Testament, this clear idea that when it says, well, what does God know? Well, God knows everything that happens in his universe. There's nothing that escapes his attention. And so number two, then, that leads us to a, a little deeper thought that God knows our secret thoughts. God knows our secret thoughts. He knows your secret thoughts, to be in particular about it. Um, that's not a pleasant thought sometimes. I don't know what you thought about the people you're driving behind or around today, um, but God knows it, all right? And so um, that can be a little uncomfortable, uh, depending on what your thoughts are. First Chronicles 28 verse 9 says this, and you, Solomon, my son, know that the God of your father, excuse me, you know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Psalm 44, verse 21, the last part of that verse. For he knows the secrets of the heart. 
Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Hebrews 4, 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Again, think of Jesus How many times do you read in the accounts of Jesus interacting with people that he knew the motivations of those who were questioning him or who were challenging him or even coming to him sincerely? He knew the hearts of people. And why? Because Jesus was God and and God knows those secret thoughts. And so add to that, number three, that God knows the future. God knows the future. He knows your future. He knows my future. He knows the future. David reflected in Psalm 139, Um, that beautiful passage that just talks about God's intimate knowledge of his life. He says this, that your eyes saw my unformed substance long before I was even a thought or a sparkle in someone's eye. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not, there was yet none of them. Isaiah 41, verse 21 through 24, um, is a passage we won't read, but I'd encourage you maybe to go back and read that. But basically it's a challenge from God to Israel who was worshiping all these idols and has all these false prophets. And he's challenging them to a a battle of, of predicting the future. And God continues to make the case dozens of times that I'm going to predict a future and it's going to come true. And we've seen that even just last week, I think we read the God, the promise of God 400 years before Uh, the exodus and all that stuff that God told Abraham that your people are going to go to Egypt. They're going to be slaves for a long, long time. Then they're going to come back here. God is consistently predicting things in the Old Testament that came true and in the new as well that we look forward to. And that sets God above those who are just guessing. And he challenges them in that. He knows the future. Number four, go a little deeper. God knows the what ifs. God knows the what ifs. There's times in scripture when God challenges a people who will not believe in him and he'll use little phrases like, well, if I would have sent this person to this group of people that weren't hard hearted or stiff necked, they would have listened, but you won't because he knew what would have happened if, okay? Matthew eleven twenty one is an example of that. Jesus says to the people of his day, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you, all the miracles Jesus had done, all the things he had taught them, if 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 the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Ezekiel 3 verses 4 through 6 is an example of the same thing in the Old Testament. Ephesians 1.11 idea is that he calls all of us according to the purpose of his will, right? He, he knows all of those things going forward. He knows the what ifs, okay? And finally, I love this statement that God cannot learn. God cannot learn. Now, why is that? That is not because he is really old and you can't teach an old God new tricks. That's a pun, okay? There's, there's more of that quality humor that you might receive in that text. But you can't teach an old God new tricks. That's not why God doesn't learn. It's because God doesn't have anything to learn, Right? There is nothing that he does not know. He understands it all he, from beginning to end. Um, he's outside of time. He's not bound by time. He sees things differently than we do. Romans eleven thirty three and 34. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And Paul's implied answer is no one. There is no one to counsel God because his mind is different than any other mind in the universe. Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And again, the implied answer from Isaiah was no one did because God knows it all. All right, and so Psalm 147, verse 5 kind of summarizes these thoughts when it says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And so when we approach this theme of election, foreknowledge, all this stuff, you have to start with what does God know, I think. And, and the Bible is very clear that God knows it all. There are no surprises in God's timeline. He knows it all because he's above it all and outside of it all, and he sees it differently. So he's able to stand at the beginning of the hallway of time and look down through it and see all the things that happen, which ought to blow your mind, right? That's, he's other than you, right? He's not like you. You and I are bound by what I can see today and yesterday and a few years of history behind me and maybe a, a couple days ahead. We're bound by that. He is not. And so when scripture talks about how awesome God is and all of these themes understand what God knows uh, in Scripture. And so I put that up as maybe a little piece of this that we need to understand that God does know a lot, right? But number two, God knows. And so what does he do with that knowledge? Number two is the second thing. I would just have you see that how active God is to accomplish his will in his world and in his way. I probably should have put some punctuation in that, that sentence. I apologize if I didn't, if, if that violated some rules. But I just want you to see how active God is to accomplish his will in his world in his way. Now, most often the Bible reinforces the truth of God's sovereignty, of his greatness, when, people, when God's people specifically are going through really hard times. It's in those moments that God chooses to remind his people of his bigness and his sovereignty and why is that important? Because the world around you may feel like chaos. It may hurt. There may be an uncertain future. You may fear death. You may have all these uncertainties. And so God comes to his people oftentimes in scripture and just reminds them of the big picture. Remember who I am. Remember, I've got this. Uh, your life is in my hands and I will hold you. It may, be it may be shaky. It may feel scary, but I've got you. And so that's true of the Egyptian slavery uh, of the Israelite people. God came through the Exodus, whether it's the kingdom of David and his family, the coming of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. What more chaotic event can you find in Scripture than the Son of God being crucified as a common criminal? The resurrection of Jesus. None of that surprised Jesus, or surprised the Lord, excuse me, because as he looks at history and he looks his way through all the things that are going on, he is active to accomplish his will in his world, in his way. And so throughout all of those chaotic events that from our perspective just seem chaotic and slow and random, and yet you see this, this thread that runs through all of them. For example, I would give you this as, as an example. In Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 27 and 28, um, and I said that oftentimes God comes to his people in times of their most scary moments 
Well, this is the first time in Acts chapter 3 and 4 the church is being persecuted. Um, this is the first time that, just like Jesus, the, the Pharisees, religious leaders, began to push back on the church and, and their preaching of the gospel. Some of their leaders were arrested, put in jail. It's a scary thing. They'd watched Jesus be crucified not long before this, and now they're fearful for the lives of their leaders. And so they gathered together after some of those leaders were allowed out of jail. And, and this is verse I'm showing you from a larger prayer that they pray for boldness. Not to escape, not to have it easy, not to have all their troubles gone. They just pray, Lord, make us bold. And this is what they point to, to God's sovereignty and his control. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, his elect one, his chosen one. That's the word there. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They found comfort in the fact that the most crazy moment in the Bible, Jesus being crucified, that that was God's plan somehow, that God was in that. And he was using that to do his will in his world, in his way. And maybe you have some chaotic moments in your life right now. And maybe you think, where in the world would God be in any of this? Well, if God could be in the crucifixion of Jesus, he could probably be present and working his will in his world, in his way, in some of the chaotic, painful, hard things that maybe you and I face. I love Acts chapter 18. It gives us another example of how this worked out. Paul is in Corinth, a crazy pagan city. He's trying to preach the gospel. He's facing some pushback, some difficult things as well. He's a little uncertain, probably a little fearful. And Acts chapter 18, verses 7 through 10 says this. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, which is also how Tyler should order his french fries, right? Crispus, right? Of the synagogue leader and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Again, Paul's nervous, fearful for whatever reason. Don't be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you. And this is the phrase, because I have many people in this city. God's encouragement was for Paul to not stop because God could look down the road and see if you do what you're supposed to do, there's all these people that are going to come to know me. And so he encourages Paul not to stop because God knew what was ahead. It wasn't a guess. He knew, right? If we're, he knows those things, right? What people will decide along the path. I have many people in this city. And so that was an encouragement to Paul. Don't stop. I've got, I'm, do, I'm at work here, right? Doing my work in my world in my way. Don't stop, Paul. So I, I just think it's interesting as you think of the God side of some of this wrestle that God knows so much. He is so big and his awesomeness is great. And he is at work in this world. And so what does that work and that way look like a little bit? Well, God's ultimate will is for people to know his love through his son, Jesus. And that's the third thing I think that we kind of transition a little bit from the God side of this to us side of this, right? How is affection for the world results in an invitation to all? I want you to understand that God's love, his affection for this world that he has made, fallen as it may be, his love for this world results in an invitation to all. Now, some people look at that and say, well, because God knows everything down the road, he decides for us. And there's nothing that we decide. And it's only for a few select people. 
and I would disagree with that respectfully, um, because of verses like the ones I'm going to show you here. That the idea that God, when he comes, that in some strange way, God who knows all, who is present in all things at all times, um, somehow works this out where we're all invited. Now, he may know what's going to happen, who's going to decide, who's not going to decide, but somehow he allows us the, the, uh, the opportunity to choose. I guess that's free will is what we would apply that to be. You see, there's no doubt when you read the Bible that God has a deep love for people. And when you come to the debate on election or predestination, you have to ask, does that love to extend to all people or just certain people that God has chosen ahead of time? And there is a strong thread of scripture that points to the idea that God's love extends to all, that Christ's death was for all, not just for some. And so I'll show you a few of these verses. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 says this. Pay attention to the word all in this passage. I urge then, first of all, not that all is less important, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. All right, there's a beautiful invitation. We're going to do that in just a second. Actually, I'll that worse here. But he goes on to say in verse 3 and following, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants, there's our word, all people, not just some people, not just certain people. He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And so the allness of that, we'll come back to in just a second. I want to take a, maybe an awkward detour, but that verse invites us to pray and I don't know if you've noticed that there is a, a little bit of chaos in our culture right now because we have election coming up in a few weeks. Um, and uh, there's a lot of anger and fear and all kinds of things floating around in our culture. Um, and that verse just invites us as Christians to pray, to ask God to do, again, he sees it, he knows it, he knows all the things. But we need to experience that. And so um, we're going to take a moment here and I'm just going to ask for you just to pray for yourself, to pray for our land, to pray for all of this as we kind of process this, the craziness of, the, of these moments um, in light of what you have just heard, right? Not just coming in here. I, saw, I listened to a few political campaigns on the way here or ads on the radio, but in light of what you've just heard from scripture of who God is and where God is, just why do we pray for that? What do we pray out of that? Well, I, I think we ought to pray with some calmness, with some trust, and with some priorities that I'm going to pray for after that. But I just want to ask you, if you will bow your heads, and I just want you, whatever worry, fear, whatever you've got feeling on your heart today, lift it up to the Lord and ask God to be at work in our land in this time. So I'm going to give you a moment of quietness, and then I will uh, follow that up with a, with a prayer for us. Lord, there is a, uh, a great panic, it seems, in our land right now as we approach this election from every side, it seems. Fear and anger are running rampant, but we read these verses and reflect on these truths, and we are faced with the fact that there is no panic in heaven right now. 
We've just seen that you know all and you are involved in all and that you are in complete control in your ways. You will accomplish what you want done. And so no matter what happens in two weeks, we know that your position on your throne is quite secure. So right now, as we wrestle with all the things and the issues and the uh, just the emotions of, of our culture right now, it can be easy to swept up into that and, and uh, lose sight of what as Christians we should be focused on, and at least at first, and, and that is you. And so, Father, would you lead us to faithfully do our part as you lead and as we are convicted to, uh, to participate as citizens of this good land? And Father, then to go back to work of loving you with all of our heart and our soul and our minds and our strengths and to love our neighbor and to do that work, as Paul talked about, and living out our, our godliness and our holiness um, in peacefulness and quietness. And so, Father, would you uh, please help us in this time? Lord, we ask for you to uh, help us to see and to uh, see the path forward. We pray for the ability to live in peace with others. That is hard right now in certain ways. And so we pray that you would help us as people who have been given the peace of God to be peacemakers. May we listen. May we understand. May we communicate in calmness and love. Lord, I ask that you would help us to, to stand with those maybe in our culture who, who don't have a voice. Who's our push to the margins. And may we be mindful of them and not just ourselves. Lord, I ask you to uh, act in the lives of all those who lead us right now, from our president to our representatives to each one locally. Father, we just pray for a, a spirit of partnership that might seek a greater good. May they listen to you. May your wisdom guide each decision that's made. And Father, we ask that you would bless our nation. Thank you for the compassion and the grace that you have shown to us. And pray that you would continue to do that. Father, may we be humble. May we live in, in love uh, for you and out of a love for you. And may that be seen uh, through our lives as Christians. And so uh, just guide us in this time. Help us in this time. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And so Paul asks us to pray. But as he asks us to pray, he asks us to also be prayerful because the reasons we pray is that God's heart is for all people that Christ has died for. Other places in scripture reflect that truth as well. First John chapter two, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only for our sins, but also for all the sins of the whole world. Again, just see the broadness of that his affection for. First John late, chapter 4, later he goes on to say, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. John three sixteen and following these familiar verses, for God so loved the world, again the broadness of that, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, 
not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And it just seems as you read through Scripture, you find that the words like everyone and whoever and whosoever will, as the King James used to say, those words all, those words just seem to creep in from time to time that reflect while God knows and God has his plan and he's working, but he also somehow has built in this way in which you and I have a choice in that. There is a will that we must exercise. And that leads to this last thing that I want you to see. Just recognize how he acknowledges and adheres to our choices for or against him. That God acknowledges and adheres to your choices for or against him. Throughout scripture, God does all of his mighty work. And then he comes to people and he says, will you follow me? Will you believe in me? Will you trust me? We saw it last week with the Exodus. God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, presents his covenant to them. And then he comes and says, will you agree to this? He gives them a choice. And they agreed in that situation. Where, while there is this constant emphasis in the Bible on God's sovereignty over all things and his love for all people, somehow God still honors our will. And again, there's confusing things in that. And I, I don't get all of it, but he's... Those seem to be reflected in truths of Scripture. And this tension that you may feel as you compare those things, the Bible is okay with. And maybe we don't like tensions like that, but sometimes we need to live with the tensions that the Bible is quite comfortable with. What God wants is for all to come to repent and be saved. But what God allows, is, it seems, is for us to choose to embrace or reject that loving invitation. There is a tension in that truth that I don't think we will ever, on this side of earth or heaven, be able to fully... Um, make peace with. Maybe we won't even that side of heaven because God is so much different than us. But the Bible assumes, at least it speaks to us as if we have a choice. It speaks to you and me as if there are decisions that I must make for myself and you must make for yourself based on the truth of all that God has done in his grace, his mercy, his greatness before me. It treats people as if their choice is relevant to the outcome of their story. Yes, in some confusing way, God knows what we will do ahead of time, and he acts on that knowledge to make sure things work out in the good way. But in the Bible, God speaks to us as if our decision to trust him or not is an important part of the equation. Verses like Joshua 24, verse 14 and following. See, there, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's choice language, right? And that's in light of all the incredible things that God has done in Joshua already, right? God did so many things they could never do themselves, right? This isn't about them doing their fair share. It's just simply God has done his mighty work. Will you follow him? Will you trust him? Will you serve him? Uh, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Again, that's language that emphasizes a choice they need to make in light of all that God has done. Luke seven thirty. Luke summarizes the Pharisees' response to John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus when he says this, All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. 
because they had not been baptized by John. God had a purpose for them to get, get in line, respond to the messenger who was coming before the Messiah. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. And finally, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still un are uncircumcised. This is harsh language, but this is Stephen. He's about to have large rocks beat him to death, basically. So he's in a blunt mood. And so he, he, he's honest with them about before they kill him. And he just warns them, you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Again, that's just language that God is trying to move into their life, but they are resisting that. And so the language is all over the place, but it, it forms this, these two tracks, I think, that of all that God is, all that God does because of all of God's greatness. But there are these simple things. God just wants to move into our lives, to work in our lives. And, and we have a choice, it seems, to reject, to push back on that uh, or not, or to submit and to surrender to that in our life. C.S. Lewis says it um, in a pretty clear way here, the beginning of the statement from The Great Divorce says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who will say to God, thy will be done. Those are those who submit. God, your will be done in my life. I surrender to all that you have done. All right, I answer that invitation. And the other group of people, those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. We wouldn't submit. We resisted everything God wanted to do. And God says, fine, I will, I will honor that. I will acknowledge it. I will recognize your decision. And then he goes on to say, all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, those who knock, it is opened. And so I, I would just ask you, what is the decision of your will today? If I was to, um, I guess, compare this to my marriage a little bit, a long time ago in a college far away, this guy and this gal met each other and they liked each other. And if you were to try to now, 25 years later, break it down and write books about, well, who chose who? Well, did she chose him? Why would she do that? But he chose her because she has all these great qualities about her. Uh, so we get that. But why would, he, why would she choose him? Well, but you think, well, who chose who? They both chose each other, right? There was, and so if you try to separate into different camps, it just gets awkward and you miss part of it. But they chose each other. And I think the same thing is true in Scripture. There are lots of things that our minds wrestle with and we try to grab a hold of and it don't make sense in some ways. But, but at the end of the day, God makes it clear he will choose anybody who will trust in Christ. And, he, and we need to make it clear to him that, God, we, we recognize your gracious gift of salvation and we will surrender and, and, and trust, trust in that message as well. And so what is the decision of your will today? Maybe as you consider this, um, you look at your life and you think, man, I, I am not a Christian, but I need to be, right? They're, these My decisions in life make a difference. They matter. And, and maybe this is the day where you uh, are ready to put your trust in Christ, to repent of your sin, uh, to be baptized into him, and to begin that journey of life with him. Or maybe that's been an old story in your life and you're just not living faithfully. Joshua didn't write this, his words to newbies. These are people who had been walking with them for a long time. But Joshua challenges them, um, who are you going to serve? So who are you going to serve today? Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we, uh, we are thankful for your greatness. Um, it's just hard for us to put into words the awesomeness of who you are as we look at phrases and things like, um, you know it all, and you know the what ifs, and, and you know the future, you know our hearts. That is just beyond our ability to understand. 
And that's what makes you God. But Lord, you've made it clear of your heart for us. You love us. You care about us. You died for us and you want us back. So Father, there's not a thing we can do to earn that or deserve that. But just the submission, the surrender of our hearts towards you and your greatness for us. Lord, if there be some today who the spirit is working, the spirit is prodding, the spirit is nudging in that direction, would, would you allow them to embrace that calling? And Father, for those of us who maybe have been walking and our walk has grown cold, um, the spirit wants to rekindle that and make that alive and warm again. Would you allow us to surrender to that today? Father, thank you. These tensions are hard and they're confusing in ways, but they're also comforting there's a great big God who has us all under control and we're going to be okay if we're in him. And so, Father, we take peace in that today and thank you for Christ who makes it all possible for us and pray these things in his name. Amen.